0: What's going on everybody? I'm Andrew and this is the Dawn of Sapiens podcast. So it's been a while. Uh, I've been working on a project for my YouTube channel that should be released pretty soon. I originally planned to explore uh, this interesting and actually pretty amazing study that uses ancient DNA to reconstruct the ecology of mammoths on the Siberian steppe. But as I was getting ready to uh, sit down and and write an outline for that episode, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History released a new episode. Well, it was actually uh, on his second podcast feed, and it was called The Long View. And the description perked my ears up because for the first time, Dan was diving into prehistory. And it's an interesting moment for me because in a way, Dan is partly responsible for me living in the world of anthropology. I've always found history interesting, and when I left the Air Force in 2011, I discovered Dan's Hardcore History podcast. His exploration and narration of history was always riveting to me. Between his podcast and my own reading, I started to have an issue with one thing in particular, and really it can be boiled down to one phrase that is used constantly by historians and history buffs, and that phrase is human nature. After listening to enough of Dan's podcast episodes and reading enough history books, I realized that history studies humans in a civilizational and agricultural environment. And I also realized that this is a very different environment than the one our ancestors evolved in. So naturally, I got curious about the 90 plus percent of our species experience before civilization. In a way, this hardcore history episode is a clashing of my two worlds. While listening to it, it became apparent how a history guy perceives prehistory. There were times I agreed and times I disagreed with Dan. So I thought rather than do the ancient DNA episode while this was still fresh in my mind, I would take some of the topics that Dan touched on, explore them and add my two cents from a anthropology point of view. Many argue that language probably predates Homo sapiens And it's possible that Neanderthals were capable of using language. In fact, linguistic anthropologist Daniel Everett even argues that language may exist as far back as Homo erectus, which first appeared around 2 million years ago. It's debatable, but he probably stuck around to near 118,000 years ago. The ability to communicate at this level implies that Homo erectus, Neanderthals, or both were much closer to Homo sapiens than chimps, never mind anatomically modern humans. This idea that Homo sapiens, who existed before a specific point in time, were less than modern humans, is based on a science that has more or less been rejected. This idea revolves around the argument that near 50,000 years ago, and possibly as early as 100,000 years ago, Homo sapiens underwent a paleolithic revolution that saw their stone tools become more derived or advanced. This fact is often paired with the implication that language would have needed to exist for such advancements. The sudden emergence of language pairs well with the likes of Chomsky's language module of the brain that just seems to pop into existence. Chomsky himself offers no explanation or even interest in explaining how that works how the language module evolved, or where it came from, which is kind of strange to me. The fact that the earliest cave paintings are less than 70,000 years old is another point of evidence in the minds of revolution believers. Dan calls anatomically modern humans, which I presume what he really means as prehistoric hunter-gatherers, as barely more than, quote, complex chimps, chimps with fire, or as having modest religious understanding. But what exactly is this comparison? It's not really surprising that as a man of history, Dan would consider populations that lack what like institutions, uh, large monumental structures, complex hierarchy and possessions as simple people. But it was strange for me to hear him say and claim that because of this lifestyle, these people, these populations were little more than chimpanzees. But to claim that because of this lifestyle, these populations were little more than chimpanzees strikes me as coming from someone with a lack of biological and anthropological perspective. Regardless of what their social configuration is, these people were in every way human. The last remaining hunter-gatherer groups lack most of these cultural, quote, innovations, but only the ill-informed would seriously consider them closer to chimpanzees than modern humans. Their brain is identical to any other persons on earth they feel the same emotions have the same cognitive ability and experience the same drama as any american or european today even fossil tooth analysis shows us that developmental growth patterns in our species as a whole is essentially the same it's not until you analyze teeth from homo erectus do you start seeing developmental patterns equally close to chimpanzees as they are to humans But from the perspective of you or me, hunter-gatherers do appear to live a simple life. Does this make them primitive while us Westerners are advanced? There is this implicit feeling in Western culture that we are advanced and those that live off the land are primitive. Now, this can be debated, but the point is that human beings going back hundreds of thousands of years are not chimps. They're us. I've noticed a trend in how human nature is explained by those who are heavily influenced by the present. They often propose to be explaining the experience and behavior of our species up to 300,000 years ago by using evidence from the last 10,000, 7,000, or 5,000 years. Dan falls into this trap as well. When he compares prehistory with Lord of the Rings, He wonders if the same war, drama, and romance we experience today was always happening during our species existence, just on a, you know, smaller scale. To be fair, there are anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists that argue in the same vein. But to me, this amounts to wiping away 300,000 years worth of human history and projecting all these conditions of the present or historical present onto the history of our species. This destroys the demographic, ecological, and environmental factors that defined and shaped us as a species. Dan wonders whether the first time 1,000 homo sapiens are together in one spot if it is due to war. This might be true, but in my opinion it's likely much more recent than he imagines. Genomic evidence shows that for most of our history, And even up to a million years ago, our ancestors' effective population was never more than 25,000 individuals across the planet. The population did begin to increase between 50,000 and 30,000 years ago, but the consequences of that population increase still can't be projected into the past to define the nature of Homo sapiens. If anything, any change in behavior just reinforces that Homo sapiens are indeed products of ecological and demographic forces. This constraint is inconvenient for those that want to paint human history in their image. If humans behave differently in groups of 30 than they do in groups of 10,000, it makes it harder to argue that humans were constantly fighting battles against neighboring groups. If population density was a fraction of what it is today, it's more likely that groups would only infrequently run into each other in the first place. In her book, The Old Way, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas actually observes that the San of the Kalahari had a population density of one person per 10 square miles. She also pointed out that the territory of any group, which usually averaged below 50 members, was so big the men could hunt for weeks without leaving their territory or seeing any sign of another group. On the surface, this seems to be counter to what chimpanzees would tell us about how our ancestors behaved. It's popular to point to chimps and argue that our species comes from a long line of warriors. The thing is, this view lacks nuance. Sure, the Joe Rogans of the world ignore the behavior of the equally related bonobos, but I don't even need bonobos to make my point. Because if you drill down, you'll see that the chimpanzee itself exists on a continuum of aggression. Different populations have different levels of aggression, and much of this is driven by demography and ecology rather than inherent aggression. When I asked evolutionary anthropologist and chimp researcher Lyran Samuni where savanna chimps sat on the continuum of behavior between rainforest chimps and bonobos, here's what she had to say.
1: I think first, uh, we need to remember that habitat categorization is a continuum. Hmm. So we do see chimpanzees living in more savanna like environments in both East Africa and in West Africa. But just as an example, I think that ch- the chimpanzee population that lives in the most extreme savanna habitat that is uh, studied is the Fongoli population in Senegal, and data that comes from this chimpanzee population in some way is much more similar to Thai. It's the same subspecies, the western chimpanzees, than to the eastern chimpanzee uh, idea of, of female sociality. Um, so in that sense savannah chimpanzees in West Africa have females that are more bonded, that are more integrated within the groups, and they're more cohesive. And I think in that sense, they really serve as a great comparative partner to the Thai chimpanzees. Unfortunately, they have such a large home range because of the scarcer environment. I think their home range is more than double the size of a Thai group. It's about 100 square kilometers that they hardly ever interact uh, without groups.
0: From the point of view of a historian or a history buff, it might seem that data is limited in primatology or paleoanthropology. This is true to an extent, but to skip the available data or cherry-pick data to fit a narrative is disappointing to me. I don't hold it against Dan too much, considering there are anthropologists that do the very same thing. But it is interesting to ask whether Dan is aware of his bias as a history guy. I get it. There are countless examples of violence, selfishness, and war throughout history. I completely understand why he has to come to the conclusion that he has. Where Dan looks from modernity back, from complex society and culture back, I look from human origins forward, from biology up. And this is most likely why our views clash. Sure, humans have the potential to be aggressive and violent, yet there's really no evidence of sustained war in humans before, say, 30,000 years ago, and that's being generous. There's potential fossil evidence here and there, but much of that is due to cannibalism, which doesn't necessarily implicate the use of violence. The closest evidence of sustained violence is found in Neanderthals. An absurd percentage of their fossil remains show traumatic injuries. But these injuries appear to be from their close quarters hunting style rather than waging war against other Neanderthals or Homo sapiens. At one point, Dan returns from the depths of time to a more familiar period to talk about slavery. Specifically talking about Roman and German societies, Dan argues that the vast majority of human societies practice slavery. We can all generally define the term society. But because Dan is jumping back and forth between deep time and historical periods, I wish he would have clarified what he meant by the word societies. I think we can all agree he was talking about groups of people, but was he referring to civilization where populations are stationary, hierarchical, and are embedded within large institutions like religion and government? If this is the case, then I would have to agree with Dan on a basic level. The thing is, Dan describes slavery as being on the list of human constants. In paleo, or evolutionary, anthropology, human is ill-defined. It can refer to our species Homo sapiens, to cousin species such as Neanderthals or Denisovans, or even to the entire genus of Homo. It's safe to assume that at the very least Dan is referring to our species. I find it problematic that in one breath Dan is describing slavery through the Romans and Germans, and in the next he is calling it a human constant. To me, this is projecting very recent human behavior, which is just as much a product of demography and ecology, and projecting it hundreds of thousands of years into the past, implying that slavery is inherent, maybe even a behavior genetically ingrained into us. There's no evidence that slavery occurred hundreds of thousands of years in the past. There's no evidence of social stratification until recent times, relatively speaking. Some argue that the Göbekli Tepe megalith in modern-day Turkey indicates social stratification was occurring and hard laborers or slaves may have been the muscle behind its construction. If we accept this as fact, that pushes slavery back to about 10,000 years ago. Our species is over 300,000 years old. So 10,000 years is about 3% of the total existence of our species. How can the last 3% define the first 97%? To me, it's very plain to see that non-anthropologists, and hell, even some anthropologists, view the majority of our species' life history as a blank slate, which conveniently allows them to apply their academic specialty to the story of human origins without contending too strongly with any antagonistic data. You see this all the time with evolutionary psychology, history, economics, and sociology. The possibility of slavery in the deep past doesn't even make sense when you consider population density, kinship relations, lack of specialization, lack of surplus resources, and the nomadic lifestyle of hunter-gatherers. When Dan talks about migrations, admixture, and ethnicities, he comes to the conclusion that ethnicities are temporary. The human population has been mixing forever, and the label of indigenous peoples is misleading unless you are referring to a population that evolved in eastern Africa and has always lived in eastern Africa. It was strange to hear the term ethnicity being used in association with ancient DNA. Now technically DNA from two to 3,000 years ago is ancient DNA. But ancient DNA stretches back as far as a million years ago. Actually, a newly released research just pushed that back to 2 million years ago. But when it comes to the genus Homo, this is reduced back down to about 435,000 years ago. But on a historical scale, this span of time is still far beyond the scope of terms like ethnicity. I guess in a way this proves Dan's point that current ethnicities are nothing more than a flash in the pan. And Dan justifies this viewpoint by claiming that, quote, we have been mixing forever, which is also true. The problem I have is Dan never quantifies these claims. What does it mean to be mixing forever? To what degree or intensity or frequency is mixing occurring? Dan gives the impression that the human species is one homogeneous population. Take a single gene, for example, the APO gene. This gene produces a protein that helps to transport and stabilize circulating cholesterol. In humans, this gene has three versions or alleles, but let's pretend it has five gene versions, and let's represent each version with a different color, red, orange, yellow, green, and uh, purple. The amount of these colors or alleles a gene has is one way to measure genetic diversity. Not all genes have multiple alleles. But if we expand this analogy to all genes in the human genome that do have multiple versions, you can begin to grasp the concept of genetic diversity. If a small group migrates out of Africa, it is likely, by chance, to take only a small portion of these alleles with it. For example, maybe a group of 1,000 leaves Africa, and maybe they only take the red, green, and orange APO alleles with it. This reduction of five alleles to three alleles represents a loss of genetic diversity in the APO gene. Now imagine this happens to all genes that have multiple alleles. Genetic diversity is naturally lost as groups branch off from their mother population. Following our analogy, the gene pool of a branching or founder population is less colorful. This is exactly what happened in the major out of Africa migration. And the further away from Africa a population is, the less genetic diversity it possesses. Native Americans have the lowest diversity. This makes sense since they are the last branch of migration. The San Bushmen of South Africa, on the other hand, have the most genetic diversity of any human population. Their genomes are very colorful. Now, if humans were constantly mixing, the genetic diversity would be identical in all regions of the world. This probably doesn't blow anyone's mind. It's obvious that humans across the world were not historically or prehistorically a single breeding population. Like all other animals, geographic isolation results in reproductive isolation, most of the time at least. And I'm sure Dan would agree with this. Dan seems to be contemplating human migrations on a smaller scale. But even on single continents, human lineages were often isolated from mixing with other groups. The world of ancient genetics is full of ghost lineages. These are groups of people who essentially became extinct and failed to pass on their DNA to future generations. Their DNA is absent in modern humans, in in us. Before the rise of ancient DNA, these ghost lineages went unknown. But not all deeply divergent lineages disappeared. The San of Southern Africa seemed to have branched away from its mother population up to 270,000 years ago. I mentioned earlier that they also have the highest genetic diversity of any known population. Now, these two facts attest to the ancientness of the divergence from their mother population of all modern humans. That's not to say that these distinct lineages never mix with other populations. But many groups maintain genetic cohesion. Unless admixture from a new group provided an extremely advantageous mutation New genetic material is usually just absorbed over time or remains neutral and at low levels in the population. Admixture won't necessarily cause groups to lose their genetic distinction. It seems the further in the past we explore, the truer this is. Low population size and population density limited the amount of genetic mixing between populations. The closer to the present, the more right Dan becomes. So. Overall, Dan's right that populations mix, but mixing doesn't automatically mean that, quote, ethnicities, if you want to call them that, are temporary, even if they aren't, quote unquote, pure. But even in present and historical times, mixing can be absent from ethnicities that live feet away from each other. The best example of this is in India, and it's a result of cultural and religious practices. The strict adherence so, the segregation due to the case system means that genetic isolation has remarkably endured with people who are part of the same population. Now, usually I'm more interested in ancient DNA that goes much further into the past, and the complexity of migrations and admixing is too great for me to really go into any further depth. If you really want to take a deep dive into the genetics of human migration in the last, say, 30,000 years or so, I recommend two of geneticist and writer Razib Khan's podcasts. The first one's Unsupervised Learning, and the second one is the Insight podcast. Both are full of interesting migration histories that I think Dan himself would find fascinating. Now, ultimately, Dan is right that mixing has occurred throughout history and prehistory. And he's definitely right that the Nazi claim of genetic, quote unquote, purity is nothing more than a racist wet dream. My point is simply that even with mixing, population structure often persists, at least to the point that the population geneticists can map the timing of events within the genomes of these populations. The phenotypic traits that make up how we define ethnicities are really just a fraction of the human genome. From a historian's perspective, I can see how these might be regarded as the important aspects of the genome, but on a genome-wide scale, the emergence of, say, blue eyes. De novo or from another population, says very little about the rest of the genome and physical traits of an individual. But coming back to Dan's argument, he claims that because of this mixing, almost no indigenous peoples exist. Essentially, he's saying that only those that emerge in East Africa and have always lived in East Africa could be considered indigenous peoples. In a way, Dan is both very right and very wrong. The San of southern Africa have the most basal lineage, but even then, current research leads scientists to conclude that humans evolved in a pan-African fashion rather than from a single origin. As the rainforest of Africa expanded and contracted over time, in association with ice sheets expanding and contracting, desert, grassland, and woodlands would expand and contract depending on available moisture in the atmosphere. Rainforests and desert causes human populations to become isolated, while grasslands can be thought of as highways connecting populations. Woodlands allow connection to a lesser extent. In this way, the ancestors of the sapiens lineage lived and evolved across much of Africa in a semi-connected genetic population. Those that remained isolated probably went on to become different species. Perhaps Homo naledi is an example. I've actually noticed this pattern in an earlier time period. While researching for this next YouTube video about the out-of-Africa migration of Homo erectus, it surprised me how much this species was sprawled across Africa almost immediately after emerging, and it remained this way for the most part until its extinction. So in a way, this means that either there is no such thing as an indigenous population, or that we are all indigenous. But even if you want to argue that none of us are indigenous, Is it really that binary or is it a matter of degrees? Isn't there a difference between a group living on a certain landscape for 50,000 years compared to something like 3,000 years? Is 50,000 years long enough to call a group indigenous? What if they didn't need to displace another group of humans to call that home? Do we really have to go all the way back to the birth of our species 300,000 years ago to give someone the indigenous status? The demarcation of our species itself is artificially selected. I've already talked about how Homo erectus, who arose about 2 million years ago, is of Pan-African origins. Dan likes the term First Nation rather than Indigenous people, but to me this is just splitting hairs. The deep knowledge that hunter-gatherers have of their homelands, geology, ecology, seasonal cycles, and oddities shouldn't really be ignored in my opinion. Hunter-gathers know where every blueberry bush, melon patch, predator den, path of travel, hollow trees for water, and seasonal blooms exist. Hunter-gathers can dissect the prey species on their land and tell you the function of each chamber of the stomach. They can tell you what each species of ant eats and even what each ant tastes like. A recent story hit the headline showing that when scientists declared that bare circular patches found in aboriginal grasslands was the result of plant self-organization. They should have asked the local aborigines first because they could have saved time and money. Self-organizing grass wasn't responsible for these bare patches. The elders told them it was underground termites. And when scientists checked this, the elders were right. It's fun to think about human migrations and people having tug-of-wars over land, of who was here first scenarios, of who has a legitimate political claim to land, Of who was indigenous or the First Nation, I would argue that in prehistoric times, those with deep knowledge of the land and length of occupation have the right to be considered indigenous or something like First Nation peoples. In most of prehistory, these ecological considerations are much more relevant than political considerations that only really make sense in historical and near historical times. There was one section of Dan's episode that actually caused me to recoil. It's the section where he doubts that human beings ever lived in harmony with their environment. And according to him, this is proof of our human nature. I find this so interesting because of my personal path to studying anthropology and human origins. I already mentioned that one of the influences of me following this path was Dan himself. Historians and history buffs are constantly talking about human nature. But you listen to enough of of their interviews or their podcast episodes or read enough of their books, and you can't help but to realize how short-sighted this perspective is. Because really, historians specialize in the last 3% of human existence. And I think in a way, Dan's episode was his way of acknowledging this situation. But it's disappointing to see him acknowledge this and simply project history into prehistory. It's not just projecting a tiny fraction of humanity's existence into the past that's a problem, but it's ignoring the difference between civilization and hunter-gatherer life. Stacking thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of human beings on one another matters in this story. The extreme hierarchical structure of civilization matters. Specialization matters. The domestication of animals and plants matter. The explosion of disease matters. The inability to personally know every person you encounter on a daily basis matters. If you don't seriously consider any of these things, human behavior is naively reduced down to our DNA. And once this way of thinking takes hold, it's only natural to project it as far back as 7 million years when our ancestors split from the ancestors of chimpanzees. So when Dan claims humans were always hard on the environment, it seems to me he's saying... The damage we are currently causing the planet isn't out of line with our past. It's a matter of scale rather than a matter of how we live today. But I don't buy this for several reasons. Dan doesn't quantify what being, quote, hard on the environment means. But he does give an example of chimpanzees eating all the fruits from one tree before moving to the next tree and repeating the cycle. He says that small populations, large territories, and the nomadic tendencies of hunter-gatherers make up for the way our hunter gatherer ancestors decimated the land. This causes me to ask, how is this different from any other animal? The fact that hunter-gatherers need to move to find food and water is proof that they are living embedded within an ecology, and their small populations are a direct result of the caring capacity of the environment they call home. Even in environments that we would consider extreme, Like the Kalahari of South Africa, these groups don't necessarily decimate the land before moving into untouched territories. I use the word decimate because it seems that is what Dan is implying. Today we decimate the land, we cut down vegetation, scrape the land bare, and either farm it until the soil is robbed of all nutrients or cover it in layers of concrete, asphalt, and housing. Is this what Dan means by hunter gatherers being hard on the land? It's true that hunter-gatherers will often pick all the ripe berries from a bush or dig up all the mature root vegetables they manage to find. But it's also true that the bush itself remains behind. And so do the immature roots, vegetables, and seeds that aren't quite edible. The nutrients in the soil remain. The ecosystem remains intact. I'm having a hard time seeing the way we live today as being comparable to how hunter-gatherers live and interact with their environment. In fact, according to Thomas, white farmers and even Bantu pastoralists considered the San's land as wasted because they, quote, did nothing with the land. In other words, living embedded in the ecology of the land was not enough to claim it. One must exploit the land to maintain possession. It doesn't seem like the farmers or pastoralists considered the sun use of the land as hard or decimating. They almost viewed it as untouched virgin land wasted in the hands of the sun. Now, obviously the land wasn't untouched, but it certainly wasn't exhausted of resources. Anthropologist Richard Lee worked with the San during the 60s, 70s and 80s. And when it comes to the food that the land provided the San, And the consumption of this plant food, Lee observes If the Bushmen were living close to the starvation level, then one would expect them to exploit every available source of nutrition. That their life is well above this level is indicated by the data. If all the edible plant species are arranged in classes according to the frequency with which they were observed to be eaten, there are some 85 species available about 90% of the vegetable diet by weight is drawn from only 23 species. In other words, 75% of the listed species provide only 10% of the food value, end quote. So in other words, out of 85 edible plant species, 62 of those species are essentially untouched. And like we said, if they were starving, this wouldn't be the case. And for the majority of the plant species, To not be targeted or lightly targeted, you can't really argue that hunter-gatherers decimated the land and moved on. And by the way, I don't really accept that explanation for chimpanzees either. But in this case, we have Lee with the data showing that it's definitely not the case for hunter-gatherers. And Lee also describes an incident during a drought in the 1960s that caused the crops of farmers to fail. And the only way they could figure out how to survive was by going with the sun and gathering wild foods. And this introduced no additional strain on the sun. It really demonstrates that their relationship on the land can hardly be described as hard. This brings the question of the waste of hunter-gatherers. Dan mentions the only reason hunter-gatherers and human ancestors are off the hook of polluting is because they don't make non-biodegradable products such as plastic. Now that's true, and it means that the slate of potential pollution is nearly clean for human ancestors. Modern technology means that human waste is treated before being disarmed and discarded or recycled. This is a good thing considering nearly 8 billion humans inhabit the Earth. But our prehistoric ancestors didn't have waste treatment facilities. Does this mean they soiled their local environment before the shit pile grew too big? Elizabeth Thomas can show us what happens to the feces of hunter-gatherers. According to Thomas, before the women of a gathering group marched into the bush of the Kalahari, they made a brief detour to the clearing that served as the camp's latrine. She was surprised that not only did it not smell, but there was no sign of human feces. When she asked if they bury the waste or remove it, the woman pointed to the abundance of beetles in the area and explained that they break it down. And to me, this is another sign that our ancestors were definitely embedded within their ecosystem and not living outside of it. It's tempting to think about how modern humans seem to live independently of their environment and to presume that our large brains and presence in all corners of the world means that our species disengaged from the environment very early in its history. When Razib Khan had paleoanthropologist and geneticist John Hawks on his podcast John soundly described the likely reality of our ancestors and cousins relationship with the environment.
2: That points to a different kind of interaction between ancient people, Denisovans, Neanderthals, probably ancient Africans as well, and and landscapes. I think that people were much more landscape dependent. They lived and succeeded and maintained population growth in areas where they fit into their landscapes really well where they could use the landscape in their favor where their technology enabled them to to survive and do well in a local area and that those areas were kind of few and far between so when we find people in the middle of siberia we're not necessarily finding the place that they were really super well suited for all the time, right? Why is it that the mixture between Neanderthals and Denisovans in the middle of Siberia doesn't have this sort of long-term sort of waves that go out from there? It's because this population is always on the edge and probably on balance is shrinking. This perceived
0: disassociation from our environment and ecology is just one element of several that should be considered to try and better know who we are and who our ancestors were. We ignore the possibility that our behavior is influenced by not only the number of individuals we interact with, our familiarity with them, how densely packed we are, but also female to male ratios in a population. The Steven Pinkers or even Richard Wranghams of the world like to reduce our behavior down to the inherent traits that live in our DNA. I can see why historians are drawn to that worldview. It seems to confirm what they see in the historical record. But ignoring the contrasting reality of prehistoric hunter-gatherers and modern civilizations mean that real human nature will continue to evade us. When I think about the structure and relationships of a population, my mind always drifts to the amazing research of primatologist and neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky. For more than two decades, he studied the stress levels of wild African baboons. Baboons are notoriously as nasty and brutish as chimpanzees are often portrayed. There's a specific incident that is most relevant here. After many years of studying a particular baboon troop, a new travel lodge was built on the territory of the neighboring troop. That troop seemed to luck out because the dump of the lodge was the baboon equivalent of Baskin Robbins and an African steakhouse. This place was filled with leftover desserts and meat. This set off a daily war where the local troop had to defend the dump from the most aggressive males from Sapolsky's troop. Eventually, that dump doomed them all because someone had thrown meat infected with tuberculosis in the dump, and basically anybody that ate it got infected. That meat wiped out the neighboring troop completely, and those males from Sapolsky's troop that traveled to that dump, they all got wiped out. Now, the males that died were naturally the most aggressive of the troop. And because this happened, Sapolsky decided to abandon the troop since they were so impacted by human activities and he couldn't consider them wild anymore. But before he left, he did notice that the behavior of the troop had changed. Male and female baboons were grooming each other, which was quite uncommon. Male baboons also began grooming each other, which is unheard of in baboon society. Higher-ranking males attacked lower-ranking males much less often. After having a confrontation with another baboon, Males will often attack a lower-ranking third baboon who had nothing to do with the altercation. This behavior was also reduced in Sapolsky's troop. Females were willing to have sex with new males three and a half times sooner, or 18 days versus 63 days, than occurs in standard troops. Sapolsky assumed this more pro-social behavior would disappear as new males, in search of a new troop, joined the group. But after he returned many years later, he was surprised to find that the pro-social culture had actually persisted. This hippie vibe lasted for around 20 years before the habitat in the area was destroyed for human interests and the troop itself ceased to exist. This might be obvious, but I'm going to say it anyways. The DNA of Sapolsky's troop didn't change overnight to facilitate these behaviors. This change in the troop was caused by two major elements. First, the female-to-male ratio doubled, and more females in the group naturally led to less aggression and increased sociality. Second, the males that died were the most aggressive of the troop. The behavior of baboons is not concretized in the DNA. Population dynamics play as large a role as DNA. Baboon nature is the interplay between environment and DNA. So why should we think humans are any different? especially the humans of prehistory who were more integrated into their environment and ecology than modern humans. It's true that baboons are more distantly related to us than chimpanzees, but it's also true that bonobos are as equally related to us as chimpanzees. The social culture of bonobos is well known in pop science, and yet it is often ignored. I'm willing to bet that the cultural differences of chimpanzees and bonobos is more strongly mediated by ecology, environment, and chance, such as something like the Founder Effect, than it is by DNA. It's more likely these factors are responsible for the difference than some missing, quote, violence gene in the genomes of bonobos. I'm sure most of you have heard the bonobos and chimpanzees are equally related argument a million times. It's true, but there's another angle that no one really discusses. Chimpanzees have far greater genetic diversity than bonobos. And this seems to indicate that bonobos are a small offshoot of chimpanzees, and that maybe the behavior of chimps outweighs that of bonobos. To defenders of Homo sapiens having nonviolent origins, this might be an undesirable fact. But to me, it's a perfect demonstration that diverging behaviors can emerge when a small population. Is isolated from a mother population. Savannah chimpanzees, in my mind, are another example of this. Lately, I've been thinking about demography and violence. I just used baboons as an example, but there's another example that comes to mind that is further removed from humans than baboons are. The humble grasshopper is a solitary creature. Once hatched from an egg, a young grasshopper forages on its own and depends on the vegetation around it to survive. After reaching sexual maturity, a female will lay eggs and disappear. This cycle continues generation after generation, mostly. The thing is, when the bounty of the land becomes more concentrated due to something like a drought, grasshoppers more closely compete for the same resources. This means a solitary existence is traded for a crowded reality. This population increase results in a transformation of biblical proportions. When a certain population density threshold is reached, it triggers a change in a species such as S. gregaria, or the desert locust. When these grasshoppers begin to cluster, through no fault of their own, they begin to emit pheromones that cause them to become attracted to each other rather than repelled. Together, this newly cohesive group switches from their solitary habit of flying at night to flying in the daylight. They become less cautious of approaching animals and objects and develop a voracious appetite. This transition can occur in a matter of hours due to neuroplasticity. Over their lifetime, individuals, especially males, will transition from their natural green coloring to bright yellow. These individuals reach sexual maturity faster than solitary grasshoppers and produce larger but fewer eggs. Their lives are shorter. Over several generations, they evolve smaller bodies, but brains that are 30% larger than lonely grasshoppers. It also takes several generations for these newly gregarious grasshoppers to develop longer legs and wider heads. This transition may seem like an evolutionary step from solitary antisocial individuals to pro social individuals, but it isn't what it appears. These now voracious creatures have a need to eat anything and everything, including each other. It's an odd scenario where these individuals are attracted to each other and yet cannibalistic at the same time. All these behavioral and physical changes are regulated by epigenetics, but triggered by increased population density. Now, obviously, humans don't drastically transform their physiology due to population density. There's no Homo sapiens 2.0 with increased strength or a new set of wings. And yet, there are some differences. The brains of modern humans are smaller than our prehistoric ancestors. Our jaws are smaller. We interact with strangers, which would have been much more rare in prehistory. We have children at a much younger age. We live more isolated, solitary lives. Does living in tightly packed housing and apartments while traveling densely packed streets and shopping in stores full of strangers trigger a release of pheromones? Probably not. But are there other ways that living in civilization affects our behaviors? Almost certainly. Does an overabundance of nutrients and a deficit of exercise influence behaviors? To me, it would be surprising if it didn't. Raising kids in single family units has to affect their development. Hunter-gatherer children interacted with adults of their group and neighboring groups. They learned from adults and children of all ages. Stuffing kids of the same age into a single room to learn from a single adult, while also forcing them to compete against each other, has to alter their perception of self and behavior as an adult. These are all features that most societies have in common, And yet, when one is considering human nature, they are ignored in favor of presuming our behavior is written in our DNA and has been unchanged for 7 million years. To presume that violence is ingrained in every single one of us by using examples of the last 10,000 years, while at the same time ignoring evidence from the first 300,000 years of our existence, to me is intellectually lazy. It's easier to argue this stance if one believes that humans operate outside of their environment and their genetically coded big brains are responsible for their behavior. The history of hunter-gatherers can show us how violence emerges through ecological and demographic shifts. The mechanism of DNA is not required. There are three specific examples that I always think about when it comes to humans, violence, and our relationship with the land. The first is the relationship between lions and other predators with humans. When Elizabeth Thomas and her family reached the Kalahari Savanna in the early 1950s, they settled with a group of San who had never seen white people. They lived a traditional lifestyle of hunting and gathering. Their lands were unscathed by civilization and even pastoralism. But I should mention that other groups closer to colonial farms were often kidnapped and forced into slavery on the farms. Thomas was fascinated with the relationship between the sun and the lion pride in the area. When the dry season hit, most animals drifted towards whatever waterholes were available. Lions, hyenas, and humans settled down in camps that were equally distant from each other. And humans settled down in camps that were equally distant from each other. They also visited the waterholes at different times. Despite what nature documentaries might imply, rather than an existence of blood, tooth, and claw, these predators chose avoidance most of the time. Thomas also pointed out that for the most part, the San occupied a different temporal niche than the other predators. Lions and hyenas and most other predators are most active at night. The San were active from mid-morning until just before dark when they stoked their fires and hunkered down for the night. When the son and lions would occasionally bump into each other on the savanna, a mutual understanding of avoidance was practiced where human and lion walk backwards for several meters, turn around and simply continue on their way. It's hard to believe, but this was the ecology of predators on the landscape. More than a decade later, when Thomas returned to the area, much of the land was designated national parks and the San were forbidden from living on the land and were forced to move to permanent villages. Thomas assumed lions would still practice a mutual respect towards humans, but as she was running towards her jeep with the lion close on her heels, she realized the relationship was broken. Without humans living on the land and embedded in the environment, lions no longer passed down this concept of mutual respect. Humans became unknown entities and perhaps even prey, and lion-human violence emerged. The second example of human violence and ecology is what happens when pastoralism appears on a landscape. Specifically, what happens between humans and predators. Thomas mentioned that her family owned a high powered rifle, but it rarely left the tent or the truck. Following the lead of the San, they felt no need to carry a weapon in self defense. But one of the elders warned her that in areas where people hunt or kill lions, they are dangerous to humans. He was referring specifically to the lands of pastoralists. The problem lies in the fact that to a predator, there's no distinction between wild and domestic prey. A chicken and an ostrich are both lunch. A donkey and zebra or cow and kudu amount to the same thing in the mind of a wild predator. This new valuable property meant that humans would step in to defend their animals. Human and lion were suddenly at odds with each other. This new reality is reflected in the difference of weapons between hunter-gatherers and pastoralists. Hunter-gatherers primarily rely on three-foot digging sticks and bows paired with poisoned arrows. Because the poison is slow-acting and takes several days to kill, neither of these weapons are practical to defend against or attack lions. Pastoralists, such as the Maasai, carry a very different set of weapons. With five- to six-foot spears, throwing clubs, and short swords, The Maasai battle predators in defense of their domestic property. This defense of domestic animals changes the relationship between humans and lions permanently. Thomas recounts a time when her and the San group she was with encountered a pastoralist group with chickens and donkeys in tow. When questioned, they claimed they were leaving their land because the lions had become too dangerous to live with. But predators are not the only source of violence that pastoralism introduces. In human terms, the acquisition of domesticated animals could also be viewed as a form of accumulated wealth. This inevitably results in conflict between neighboring groups. If you imagine a fierce African warrior, you are probably imagining a pastoralist with body-length spears and neck-high shields. It's not only the animals themselves that are being fought over, but rights for grazing land and water resources. In time of drought, the battle over premium grazing land and water intensifies. After a drought, a group often raids a neighboring group in an attempt to increase the size of their herd. Because pastoralists and their herds are still nomadic, they can mitigate raids and attacks to some extent by moving out of a region. But once humans settle down permanently, they would have no choice but to defend their land, animals, and now crops. It's likely that at this point, the threat of wild predators became secondary to external hostile human populations. Pastoralists and their violent lives are often confused or merged with hunter-gatherers and their lifestyle. Just as the behavior of today's people shouldn't be blindly projected into the past, failing to distinguish between hunter-gatherers and pastoralists results in a flawed understanding of humanity's relationship with itself and its ecology. There's a figure from a study that I always envision when I think about Homo sapiens' relationship with other species of their environment. The image along with links to the rest of the material I mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes or description, but for now I'll describe the image. Imagine you're looking at a line graph. On the left-hand side is the y-axis that is measuring female population size. The bottom of the y-axis is 1,000 individuals and the top is 1,000,000 the x-axis is measuring time. From right to left, it begins at 80,000 years ago and ends at the present day or zero. Now imagine two lines that are intertwining or mirroring each other, sort of like a rope that is made up of two threads. When one thread raises, the other lowers to an equal degree. These two lines represent the population of Homo sapiens and the population of Cape buffalo. At 80,000 years ago, their population is tightly bound together at no more than 20,000 individuals in each population. The two-threaded rope gradually slopes up from right to left, and between 40,000 and 7,000 years ago, the strands of the rope loosen slightly. While the Homo sapiens population dips slightly, the buffalo population rises an equal amount. By 2,500 years ago, the populations of both species converge and becomes identical. After this point, it's as if someone took each strand and attempts to unwind the rope by yanking on each thread in opposite directions. The human population explodes to well over 100,000 individuals, while the buffalo population crashes to just over 10,000 individuals. Up until 2,500 years ago, These two species were part of an intricate dance, with population levels of each tightly coupled to the other. It's striking to see this relationship disappear and result in exponential change. To me, this is an indication that up until that point, Homo sapiens were indeed embedded within their environment. By the way, a second figure from this 2012 study entitled Cape Buffalo Mitogenomics Reveals a Holocene Shift in the African Human Megafauna Dynamics shows that population of domestic cattle sharply increased, mirroring the rise of the human population. This signifies that one, it was a combination of pastoralism and civilization that were responsible for this shift, and two, conflict likely increased with this shift of population sizes. Everything I just said about Homo sapiens' relationship with violence, their ecosystems, and each other can be debated. The point I was trying to get across is that yes, you can make blanket statements that agree with your opinions, but that doesn't mean that there isn't data or information available to consider if you truly want an accurate understanding of our species and prehistory. One of Dan's last thoughts was about AI and evolution. He surmised that eventually Artificial intelligence will be able to guide our societies to evolve faster than evolution allows our brains and bodies to evolve. This is interesting because evolution absolutely does have a limit when it comes to the rate of change in a species. Much of this has to do with mutation rates, but especially generation length. For example, some species of flies only live for two weeks. This means the length of time from when they were born and when they produce offspring has to be less than two weeks. This means that mutation in sex cells and new DNA configurations due to recombination of the chromosomes during meiosis are passed down to the next generation every two weeks. When it comes to our species, DNA analysis shows our generation length is somewhere between 25 and 30 years on average. Most DNA modeling assumes a generation length in this range. The takeaway here is evolution works much quicker in flies than humans. In the 25 years it takes for a single human generation, a species of fly with a two-week lifespan would have produced at least 650 generations. That's 649 more opportunities for a beneficial mutation to arise. On the other hand, we can learn and gain the knowledge of many generations within a single lifetime. And I guess Dan's premise is that AI can not only gain knowledge even quicker than a human being, but it can comb through amounts of data so vast that any one human or even groups of humans would be unable to compute and therefore unable to locate solutions or patterns within this data. And this is probably true. Perhaps AI will be able to organize societies in a way that will allow us to overcome our evolutionary baggage to bypass our biology. But when I consider this, I can't help but think this is overthinking the issue. To me, it seems more likely that rather than create a reality that attempts to overcome our biology, AI will conclude the only way to create a better life for our species would be to create societies that are aligned to our biology, whether that be spending more time outside, more daily physical activity, more intimate relationships with a smaller amount of people, children learning with people of all ages rather than someone from one age, The ability to secure resources directly rather than through intermediary labor. Now, to some, this might seem like hippie shit, but I believe if AI analyzed our biology and the evolutionary environment that shaped us, it would attempt to merge civilization with something that at least imitates that environment. And with all this being said, I guess I'm left with the same conclusion that led me to the field of anthropology from the field of history. History doesn't study human nature it studies human potential. Put another way, it studies human behavior in very particular circumstances. This is what I concluded after being fascinated with history for years. I also concluded that thinkers in the field of history lack the broader perspective that allows them to realize this. My primary motivation for this episode wasn't to refute Dan or lecture him, so much as to bring the breadth of information that the field of evolutionary anthropology offers to the question of prehistory. Some might argue that my argument could be turned against me. Maybe anthropology is also the study of humans in a very particular circumstance. This is probably true since human potential encompasses the full range of possible human behavior and change has accelerated greatly in the last 5 to 10,000 years. The difference is The circumstance that evolutionary anthropology and paleoanthropology study happens to be the environment that shaped us. It's written in our biology.